0: Welcome to our Ecclesia study where we investigate the claims of the Bible. For many people, one of the main deterrents to accepting the teachings of Jesus is the noticeable disconnect between what Jesus taught and what many self-professed Christians say and do. As we investigate the Bible, we look into how C.I. Schofield and his reference Bible have influenced literally thousands of evangelical pastors and millions of evangelical Christians into fervently believing that the modern state of Israel is a fulfillment of biblical prophecy and should be revered and supported without question in spite of its undemocratic and inhumane treatment of both Christian and Muslim Palestinians for over 60 years of occupation. Our study leader is Mark Horton, president of Ultra Clean Corporation, and a diligent student of the Bible. Our reader is We Hold These Truths' faithful volunteer and dramatist, Leslie Ford. Thanks for joining in our quest. In today's Bible study, we're in the book of Acts. We're in chapter 15. We'll be starting in verse 22. And we'll open with a word of prayer here. Thanks, Lord, once again for... Allowing us to come together to study your word, and for Mark and his excellent uh, teaching and all his research that he, he does for us, and for all those that uh, would happen to come upon our studies, and we're thankful for for the people that do uh, uh, want to investigate, and we thank you for this time together in Jesus' name. Amen. Good evening, Mark.
1: Good evening. I hope uh, you all have gained some part of the new appreciation for the book of Acts that I have in in preparing for this uh, examination that we're doing of Acts and we have been looking at Acts as the or under the theme of the restoration of Israel and we've been going back to uh, many many Hebrew scriptures to demonstrate that Acts is fulfilling all of these prophecies in great detail. And we've come down to Acts 15 after three or four chapters where non-Judeans have been just flowing in to the assemblies of the believers all over the Roman world. Some trouble has cropped up here in chapter 15 where certain... Judean men came down to Antioch in Syria and told the brethren there that you need to be uh, circumcised in order to be saved. And there was a disputation there in Antioch, and then the the assembly of believers there in Antioch decided to send a deputation with uh, Paul and Barnabas up. To Jerusalem to visit with the apostles and elders about this question. and So that's what we've been looking at here. I know Tom said we were uh, down to verse 22, but I we've got to spend a little bit of time on this address that James made. We just barely uh, started on that last time. And so let's back up here and let's read verses 13 through 21 again uh, please humor me on this when they finished
2: James spoke up brothers he said listen to me Simon has described to us how God first intervened to choose a people for his name from the Gentiles the words of the prophets are in agreement with this, as it is written After this I will return and rebuild David's fallen tent, its ruins I will rebuild and I will restore it, that the rest of humanity may seek the Lord, even all the Gentiles who bear my name, says the Lord, who does these things, things known from long ago. It is my judgment therefore that we should not make it difficult for the gentile to are turning to God instead we should write to them telling them to abstain from food polluted by idols from sexual immorality from the meat of strangled animals and from blood for the law of Moses has been preached in every city from the earliest times and is read in the synagogues on every sabbath Great
1: thank you very much so by way of review first Peter got up and recapped how he had been sent by God to uh preach the gospel to Cornelius and his household who were uncircumcised believers and the holy spirit showed itself um miraculously uh in them even before they were immersed in water and This proved to Peter that God was now sharing the blessings that had been reserved to physical Israel. Those blessings were now being shared with all of the other nations of the world. As Paul describes it in his letter to the Roman Christians, they've been grafted in to the uh, root of Israel in the picture of an olive tree. A cultivated olive tree, and then uh, in a backwards way of doing things, these wild branches from the wild olive tree are grafted into the uh, cultivated uh, olive tree. But uh, that's another study for another time. But Peter recapped this, and then Paul and Barnabas got up and gave a recap of all that they had accomplished in their journeys to uh, Cyprus and southern present-day Turkey. And that leads up to where we picked up the reading in verse 13, where James gave commentary after they had finished. And he, he declares uh, the the fact in verse 14 that God visited the Gentiles or nations. Gentile has some strange connotations to us today. I had a, one of my closest friends in high school was Jewish, and when I would go down uh, to El Paso with him, he lived right near the uh, Jewish Youth Center, but I couldn't go in because I was a Goyim, and that was a that's kind of a slang word which means Gentile. So to me, at least personally, I'm. I'm emotionally scarred by it. <laughs> but the uh, the meaning is uh, nations. It's just any non-Judean nation. Gen- and Gentile is a word we don't use in ordinary conversation. So it makes, it makes more sense just to uh, translate it as nations, although the King James and most other English translations don't. A lot of the literal translations do just say nations. God took out of the nations of people, for his name, And this is a very uh, important point, that they're all agreeing that the time has come that God is taking a people for his name out of all of the other nations besides Judea or Israel. And he says, to this agree the words of the prophet, and then he begins quoting from Amos uh, 9. The, the reason this is uh, important, and we may have touched on this last time, is that if this was the time when the nations are being gathered into Israel, then this is the time when the kingdom has been restored to Israel. And logically then that refutes modern day dispensational or Zionist claims that we are waiting for the kingdom to be restored in a physical form into present-day Palestine in the form of the nation and or government of Israel today. Now, to to try to reconcile and harmonize all this, they have uh, created multiple kingdoms. And it is true, the Bible speaks of the kingdom in many different ways with different terms. the uh, The kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God, the restored kingdom of David, and they are all talking about one and the same thing, but if you have developed a really confusing and complicated timeline, and you demand on interpreting the Bible super literally, you can you can split these up into multiple kingdoms to try to... Um, make it all sound uh, plausible. And it, it becomes so confusing that no one can understand it. So they just have to take the uh, religious leader's word for it. But um, we, we've been trying to demonstrate as we do these examinations that all of these terms for the kingdom are one and the same. So logically, what James is saying here in Jerusalem in Acts 15 is that the time has come that the kingdom has been established, and we we've seen that consistently in the book of Acts thus far. Recall that Jesus, in the forty days that he spent in physical form with the disciples after his after his resurrection, devoted himself to one topic for those forty days: the kingdom of God. Now, if he was teaching them about something that was wasn't going to happen for thousands of years after they died you know i'm not sure why he spent all that time uh, doing that but the book of acts begins with intense teaching on the kingdom and it will end with intense teaching on the kingdom and the whole story in between is the restoration of the kingdom to israel and that's what we're finding right here in the middle of the book in acts 15 come I'm sorry. Mark, A man make yes. a comment or a question? Verse 16. After this, I will return and will build the tabernacle of David, which has fallen down, and I will build again its ruins, and I will set it up. That, of course, would be interpreted today by the Southern Baptist Convention and uh, the Mormon Church and all of the other um, uh, dispensational uh sex of today as something that's going to happen someday in the future, right? Yes, absolutely. That would be often after the rapture. Well, some I they have so many different variations pre trib, post trib rapture. I I don't know all their timelines, but it's for years the dispensationalists taught that verse 16 was talking about the rebuilding of the temple in Jerusalem. But they've quit using that because, as we hope to look at tonight, we'll see that the tabernacle of David was not the temple. In fact, David was specifically prohibited from building a temple. All he could do was gather materials for his son Solomon to build with. So when you realize that David did not build a temple, he did not build the tabernacle uh, in the form that Moses created the tabernacle at Mount Sinai. We're going to look tonight, that's our main purpose, is to look at the tabernacle of David. And uh, unfortunately for our dispensationalist friends, when you look at what the tabernacle of David was, and you see that it was to be built again and and began to be built again in the days of James and Paul and Barnabas, it pretty much refutes the whole foundation of dispensationalism and Christian Zionism. So that's an excellent question to lead right into where I was going. <laughs> okay. Any other uh, thoughts before we get into that? All right, well, we go to Amos 9. There is a little variation here. It's interesting that Nearly all of the the New Testament writers quote, when they quote from the Old Testament, they quote from the Greek translation of it, the Septuagint, which was created by 70 scholars in Alexandria some 250 years or more before Christ. It's a real faith-building thing to have copies of that today because we can see that the Scriptures did not change much at all, from 250 B.C. to the present day. It's uh, real exciting. No one rewrote the prophecies after Jesus to make Jesus fit the prophecies because we have a translation from the Hebrew to the Greek, 250 B.C. We can validate that the Hebrew Scriptures were not altered. There, we see some minor variations here in Amos chapter 9, but nothing uh, super significant. Here, if we pick up the reading in the in verse nine of Amos nine, it says, "For I will give commandment and sift the house of Israel among all the nations as corn is sifted in a sieve, and yet a fragment shall not in any wise fall upon the earth. All the sinners of my people will die by the sword, who say, calamities will certainly not draw near or come on us in that day in other words that's the day in which The house of Israel will be sifted and the sinners amongst Israel will be destroyed. In that day I will raise up the tabernacle of David that has fallen and will rebuild the ruins of it and will set up the parts thereof that have been broken down and will build it up as in the ancient days. And in our English Bibles, verse 12 says, So that they might possess the remnant of Edom and all the nations in whom my name is called. An affirmation of Yahweh. uh, The Septuagint says that the remnant of men and all the nations upon whom my name is called may earnestly seek me, says the Lord who does these things. So there's a minor variation there, but the idea is basically the same, that the tabernacle of David will be raised so that the other nations outside of Israel can seek the true God. So again, the timeline is is critical to note here. It's overlooked by most people. But James and Peter and Paul and Barnabas are all agreeing that the tabernacle of David was being rebuilt and the nations were being drawn in and that meant that the kingdom and the house of david had been uh, restored but it also i believe has some even greater and deeper richer meaning as well the material i'm going that i'm pulling from on the tabernacle of david is from a book by frank viola called from eternity to here rediscovering the eternal purpose of god i think i've mentioned it before but it's one of the most exciting books about the bible ...that I have ever read, it demonstrates the unity of God's purpose from the beginning in Genesis 1... ...all the way to the end of the revelation of Jesus Christ. And how that God consistently uses symbolism and symbolic language to communicate his eternal purpose... ...which is number one, to create the perfect bride and helpmeet for his son... And secondly, to create the perfect dwelling place for God on earth amongst men. And these two symbols are really one and the same. If you recall, uh, in the Revelation, John is going to be shown the bride. And, and he, when he sees the bride, he actually sees a city, the New Jerusalem, coming down out of heaven as a bride adorned for her husband. So these two eternal purposes of God are really one and the same, to create the perfect bride for the Son and the perfect dwelling place for the Father. And one chapter in this book which describes this is called the Tabernacle of David. And its it would be worth buying the book just for this one chapter on the Tabernacle of David. I buy the book multiple copies and I, I give a copy away to anybody I find who's interested in the story. I give three or four out every year at least. I've given away my last copy, so I'm having to go a little bit from memory here, but this is the kind of story once you hear it, it's hard to forget. <laughs> yeah, here we go. The Tabernacle of David is being rebuilt. Now, if we go to Second Samuel 6 we will find the story of the tabernacle of David. Now for a little bit of background, in the days of the judges before David, before King Saul, there was the high priest uh, Eli who kind of judged Israel, but he had a couple of sons who were morally depraved and who used their office of priest to rob the people and Israel went up to fight against the Philistines and they decided to take the Ark of the Covenant out of the tabernacle and take it into battle. And they were utterly defeated in battle and the Philistines ended up capturing the Ark. But that that's another story. It didn't work out too well. But that began the separation of the Ark of the Covenant from the tabernacle where the altar of sacrifice and the Levitical priesthood were officiating, and so on. And in 2 Samuel 6, David has gathered together a chosen group of young men out of Israel, about 70, uh, well, 30,000. The Septuagint says 70,000. This this large group, in the tens of thousands at least, went down to the borderlands, presumably, I don't remember exactly where it was, but the borderlands between Philistia and and Israel to bring up from there the Ark of God. And by way of review, this Ark was made at Mount Sinai uh, as the tabernacle was created. They had all these craftsmen who had learned their skills in Egypt. I mean, if you go to the museum in Cairo or if you see some of these traveling exhibits of the treasures of King Tutankhamun you can see the level of skill that existed in ancient Egypt in wood carving and goldsmithing and so on and so forth. So Israel had craftsmen who had trained under some of the best in Egypt. And one of these goldsmiths created the ark there at Mount Sinai out of uh, acacia wood. It was like a little box. I don't know, the size of a desk or something, and the box was covered inside and out with pure gold. The lid, however, was made of solid gold, and it was called the mercy seat, and it had uh, two cherub cherubim, uh, one on each end with their wings outstretched. And there were two other cherubim who sat as freestanding figures, on either side of the ark so that you had the four cherubim who hold up the invisible throne of God and so the the ark of the covenant with the mercy seat sitting on top was kind of a placeholder for the invisible throne of God and later uh, the copies of the 10 commandments were placed inside The uh, box, that's how it came to be known as the Ark of the Covenant. And some of the manna that God fed to the Israelites in the wilderness was placed in there. And Aaron's rod, that uh, a dead stick, budded. And that budding rod of Aaron was placed in there as well. So it was supposed to stay in the Holy of Holies. But again, during the administration of Eli, it was lost to the Philistines. David is now bring it back but interestingly and this is key to our story he's not going to take it back to the tabernacle and put it back in the holy of holies and i'd never really thought about this till i read uh, frank viola's book they made a cart to carry the ark on which they weren't supposed to do and they tried to carry it up to jerusalem the whole house of israel was uh, rejoicing playing all types of instruments and in rejoicing They got up to the threshing floor of Nacon, and um, Uzzah put out his hand to steady the ark as it wobbled on the cart, and God struck him dead for touching uh, the ark. And so they left the ark there. They were scared to uh, move it. It was left there uh, three months. I'm just kind of skipping down. And it stayed there in the house of a guy named Obed-Edom, and uh, that house was re- really uh, blessed as a result of the ark staying there. And when David found out about it, uh, picking up in verse 12, he went there and brought the ark of God up from the house of Obed-Edom into the city of David with gladness. The tabernacle was not at Jerusalem at this time. And when they carried the ark, Every time the oxen went six steps, they sacrificed an ox and a fatling. And he danced before the Lord with all of his might. David was girded with a linen ephod. Does anyone know what a linen ephod represented in those days? It was the clothing of the priests. Yet David was not a priest of the tribe of Levi. He was of the tribe of Judah. And all the house of Israel brought the ark of the Lord up with shouting and with the sound of the trumpet. And it came to pass that the ark came into the city of David. And David ran into a little marital issue there, which we're going to skip over. But here in verse 17, they brought the ark of the Lord and set it in its place in the midst of the tabernacle, which David pitched for it. So here we find the tabernacle of David that uh, Amos 9, I believe, is referring to. And James is referring to it in Acts 15. And David offered whole burnt offerings before the Lord and peace offerings. What's what's wrong with that picture?
0: Well, he's not a priest.
1: He's not a priest. He's not of the tribe of Levi.
2: Yeah, but he was anointed as king. Oh, you're
1: a troublemaker, Leslie. <laughs> You're exactly right. He was certainly anointed as king. But what we see here is that David is a figure or a type of Jesus Christ, who is both priest and, fill in the blanks, Jesus is priest and.
2: Interceptor? King. 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 Okay. Yeah.
1: So, we have here an unusual situation. You've got, you know, 20 miles away or so, you've got the tabernacle with the holy place, the holy of holies. You've got the burnt offerings being offered, the animal sacrifices. It's a bloody, terrible place. They're slaughtering animals day after day, endlessly, year after year. The throne room, however, is empty the Holy of Holies, that God's throne is missing out of it. But the priests are continuing on as if nothing is wrong. And then they recover the ark and instead of taking it back to the tabernacle of Moses, they set up a new tabernacle of David in the city of Jerusalem. And instead of slaughtering animals, well, they did slaughter animals to get it up there, but once they get up there, David offers these offerings instead of the Levitical priesthood. And then in verse 18, it says he made an end or caused to finish the burnt offerings and the peace offerings and he blessed the people in the name of the Lord of hosts. Do you see how all of this is talking about Jesus Christ? The priest, the king, the one who put, makes an end of the animal burnt offerings. And then in verse 19, David distributes to all the people, even to all the host of Israel from Dan to Beersheba, both men and women, to everyone a cake of bread and a joint of meat and a cake from the frying pan. So he's feeding the whole house of Israel. He's caused the animal sacrifices to cease he has served as both priest and king and then he has fed all of Israel and this well let me say it another way here in the tabernacle of Moses how close could the typical Israelite get to the Ark of the Covenant you didn't you didn't if you were a woman forget it. If you were a man who wasn't of the tribe of Levi, forget it. If you were a foreigner living amongst Israel, forget it. If you were a Levite, you could get a curtain away, but that's it. A few Levites could carry it from place to place, but it was covered before they even carried it. They couldn't even see it. The only one that could really go in there was the high priest and he could only go in there one day out of the year on the day of atonement and it was pitch black in there when he went in there so do you see the difference in the access to the throne of God between the tabernacle of Moses and the tabernacle of David this is probably a tent that is the sides are rolled up so Anybody who came to Jerusalem could probably see the Ark of the Covenant during the days in which the tabernacle of David existed. And so you see all of that separation that was built into the law of Moses was set aside here for these few years. And all the rules were set aside for these few years and interestingly, when we look at the men that David had gathered to himself when he was a criminal on the Lamb, they were not all Israelites. They were men from many different nations who formed the inner circle of David's court. Obed-Edom, who we read about, he was probably an Edomite. Bathsheba's first husband was not an Israelite. I forget at the moment what nation he was from, but he was from another nation. So you have this whole group of people from all these different nations gathered together in Jerusalem, and they all have access to the throne of God during this time, the time of the Tabernacle of David. Can we see the rich symbolism tied up in Re-erecting the tabernacle of David, yes, good, good. We're getting somewhere. There. <laughs> I mean, this is dynamite this is dynamite information here, if you catch the power of it, and it's it's just totally devastating to the mythology of dispensationalism. If we go to First Chronicles chapter fifteen, beginning in verse one. David made houses for himself in the city of David and he prepared a place for the ark of God and stretched out a tent for it. And David said, no one can carry the ark except the Levites, for God uh, has fixed them to carry the ark and to serve him forever. And David gathered all Israel together to Jerusalem to bring up the ark of the Lord to the place he had prepared for it. And then he talks about uh, the Levites and the priests and the musicians. And it gives uh, all these numbers out of each of these groups uh in order to do this. And they leave out that little incident with the cart and the Uzzah getting killed in this account. <laughs> and it talks about them carrying it properly on their shoulders with staves, as Moses had commanded back in the book of Exodus. Okay, and then more names of all the people that were there. They thought this was a very important event. The uh, chronicler recorded this in great detail. Obed-Edom shows up again in verse 24 as one of the two doorkeepers for the ark. And it mentions again in verse 27, David wearing an ephod. Thus all of Israel brought the Ark of the Covenant of the Lord with shouting and with sound of the cornet and trumpets and cymbals, making noise with psalteries and harps. And uh, again, then uh, David's little marital problem is mentioned again there at the end of chapter 15. But then in uh, chapter 16, so they brought the Ark and set it in the midst of the tent that David had pitched for it. And they offered uh, burnt sacrifices and peace offerings before God. And... David made an end of the offering, uh, burnt offerings and peace offerings and he blessed the people in the name of Yahweh and he gave a portion to every man of Israel, both man and woman just as we read before and then he set up uh, these Levites to minister before the ark to record, to thank and praise the Lord God of Israel so You've got the one tabernacle down there where they're offering bloody sacrifices all day long, day after day. But yet up in Jerusalem now, you have musicians uh, singing and playing praises to God on instruments of music before continually before the ark of the covenant of God. And many scholars believe that David wrote a lot of his psalms for this period of time to be used here while the ark was exposed to all the nations of the world there in Jerusalem. And there's one recorded here in First Chronicles 16. And it starts off, Give thanks to Yahweh, call in his name, make known among the peoples his doings. So, uh, this was a very special time, uh, when this Tabernacle of David existed in Jerusalem. Of course, after David died, when Solomon, uh, ascended to the throne and built the temple, well then they had a ceremony where they took the ark out of the Tabernacle of David and put it into the Temple of Solomon. And there it stayed in darkness until the Babylonians utterly destroyed the temple and the city in 586 BC and no one knows what happened to it any time after that uh, destruction of 586 BC although many people like to speculate where it went <laughs> or what was done with it uh, at that time so The Tabernacle of David, you see, was a very special time when it was like the law of Moses was suspended so that everyone could get a picture of what the reign of Messiah would be like when all the nations of the world would have access to the throne of God, which otherwise was reserved just for Israel. And then there were rings and rings of separation, and Israel really... Even themselves had no access, no direct access to the throne of God, but only through the high priest, uh, once a year. So, uh, quite the contrast. Any thoughts or comments on that?
2: It shows you that David was a man of, after God's own heart. He was very zealous on behalf of the Lord, despite his shortcomings, but, uh, and as you point out, the Word is accessible. He made worship of God accessible to the people,
1: yes, all right, yep, mm-hmm. and again, he's obviously as we read this we we see that he typified uh Jesus Christ opening salvation to all the nations of the world and creating access as symbolized by that veil ripping. Uh, as he died on the cross, all, the, all of those rings of separation that existed under the law of Moses and the tabernacle of Moses ceased to have any relevance um, after his death. And this is, that, that, this is the whole key point that why James is quoting this back in Acts 15, because the nations have equal access as foreign nations see, that's the critical part of the argument. The Judaizing teachers thought that the nations could only have access to God if they became Judeans, uh, Israelites, by enduring the right of circumcision. But the whole point of the Hebrew prophets, including Amos, is that not just Israel, but all the nations would have access to the throne of God so they don't have to give up their other citizenship to become Judean through the rite of circumcision. So it's it's a simple idea, but it's been made unnecessarily complex uh, through the years. The Judeans are very jealous, as God had predicted way back in the Song of Moses in Deuteronomy, Because they have been the exclusively chosen people of God for generation upon generation. And if the nations can come in to the kingdom of God as equal citizens without enduring circumcision and without following the law of Moses, then Israel has gone from their top tier position in the kingdom of God to almost a uh, second rate position because they are enduring circumcision still, and they're still following the law of Moses, whereas a Greek, a Roman, they are not expected uh, to do it. And that's the whole point of this meeting and discussion in Jerusalem that's recorded here in Acts 15. It's understandable that these Judeans viewed the kingdom of God as an Israelite kingdom because it was an Israelite kingdom. It is the throne of David restored, the tabernacle of David restored. But as we've seen by actually looking at the tabernacle of David, it was not the Israelite tabernacle that our dispensationalist friends thinks will be restored in the last days. It was a very special tabernacle that looked forward to the universal access to God that Jesus Christ provided. So, this whole concept, uh, this whole account that we see in Acts 15, again, sadly for our Zionist friends, just totally crushes their whole view of the Bible and their timeline for God reestablishing the promised kingdom of David and setting Jesus Christ on that throne. So it's, it's a, it's a powerful argument when you put all the little pieces together.
2: And the pieces fit.
1: The, the pieces fit quite, quite wonderfully. So again, we have these two groups of believers. One are former Pharisees who cannot bear to give up the Judean supremacy in the kingdom of God. And others, Peter and Paul and Barnabas and now James are saying, that we cannot place a burden on these nations that we ourselves have been unable to bear. Otherwise, it would defeat the whole intent of these prophecies that all of the nations in Israel's last days would be gathered together into the kingdom of God. Because if they're circumcised, they become an Israelite. And then they're no longer from another nation. So it's kind of ironic there, but that's how they are, you know, settling this dispute. Okay, so if we go back to Acts, he's saying in verse 19, he says, My judgment is not to trouble those from the nations who turn back to God, but to write them to abstain from the pollutions of idols and uh, sexual immorality, and strangled things and blood. And this is going back to the covenant that God made with Noah after the flood. These are the conditions of life and blessing that God gave to Noah when they got off the ark. So it's, it's a very short list of commands as opposed to the law of Moses, which is a very long list of commands, some 700, 670 or something like that plus all the ones that were added later as somebody pointed out last week. This is a very short list. And he then in verse 21 refers to the idea that huge numbers have been gathering in the synagogues for for years and years on every Sabbath or seventh day, Saturday to hear the Hebrew scriptures read. And this is um, really key to understanding the context of all the New Testament writings, that in every city where there was a Judean synagogue, there were large numbers of Gentiles or people of other nations who were gathering to learn more about the God of Israel. And these became the audience for Paul and Barnabas and so on as they traveled around from synagogue to synagogue. These became the core of all of the churches that they were you know, setting up in city after city. They already had a working knowledge of the Hebrew Scriptures. And there would have been a code of conduct in all of these synagogues throughout the empire because when you have a Judean mingling with a non-Judean, there are complications. And we'll probably pick up there. We will talk a little bit about this idea of the Gentiles, assembling with the synagogues for years and years in the Sabbath and what that code of conduct has been so that they can work together in one assembly. And then we'll continue on with our reading. So I'm sorry we didn't get past verse 21 tonight, but uh, I thought this was uh, really important to, uh, to go back and grab this idea of the tabernacle of David.
0: Great. Thank you.